Welcome back, Coffee and Combo listeners. This is your host, Liz Bullard. For those of you who are new to Coffee and Combos, welcome. This is my podcast where I talk with friends, leaders in the community, and other great conversationalists about wellness, politics, and activism. This episode, Dr. Donna of the Diversity Doctor community joins me to talk about creating a culture of diversity and inclusivity. And I had a really great time talking with her. It was a very fun and easy conversation as we both have a mutual goal of creating a society where everyone feels comfortable. And there's just something about talking with people who are like-minded and working towards the same goal. And how nice would it be, not for us to be a society where everyone is the same, but where we treat everybody as humans and we have this collective morality of everyone deserves to be here so as you listen to this episode i hope some of the takeaways are how you can create a safe space to talk about diversity and inclusivity and how you can be vulnerable within yourself as you go on this journey of being a more inclusive person and as this work can be arduous i hope that you remember to add three things to your cup to get you through your day and your week. Be well and find Coffee and Combos on Instagram and Facebook, as well as the CoffeeCombosLiz.com website for all merch and the latest episode. doctor it's afternoon over there so how is your afternoon going yeah it's good thank you yeah it's just early afternoon uh the children did sport this morning and now they're just playing in the house the sun is shining so it's all good fantastic fantastic and i am very excited to introduce you to um the coffee and combo community because usually you know when talking about diversity you have to like prove that people need to be treated like humans and with you, it's like, yeah, they do. And I really loved that about her original conversation. Yeah, of course. I mean, for me, it's it's a it's a no-brainer. It's the starting point. It's a starting point for any conversation. We happen to be talking about diversity and inclusion, but for me, it's a starting point to any conversation, to any connection with with somebody else. Absolutely, absolutely. And before we kind of jump into our conversation, please share with the listeners, are you a coffee or a tea person? Oh, I'm definitely, well, I was, interesting question, because I'm British, as you might be able to tell from my accent. And so I was definitely a tea person until I married my Dutch husband and moved to the Netherlands, and they are coffee drinkers. So now I'm definitely a coffee drinker, but originally tea, so... Yeah, that's the evolution for you. <laughs> Ooh, so share like what would be like your perfect cup of tea and your perfect cup of coffee? So tea for me, uh, and this can be controversial, but I put milk in first and then the tea. Um, sort of we, in England, we call it builder's tea. So a very plain tea, not Earl Grey, nothing fancy, just, just a builder's tea, an average tea with a little splash of milk. So quite strong. That would be my favorite tea. And coffee is simply black coffee, no milk, no sugar. 
No milk, no sugar. So let me ask you then, do you tend to be kind of just that straightforward person, that strong type of person like your coffee? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to say yes without thinking about it too much. <laughs> I like to get to the point. So yeah, I would, I would say yes. Awesome. Awesome. I like trying to find that, you know, our, sometimes we're very connected to how we uh, take our coffee or our tea with our personality. And that's been like the most interesting thing on this journey of asking people about, are they a coffee or a tea person? Yeah. But you see my, my, so my coffee is very straightforward, no nonsense. And I'm more particular about my tea. So I don't know what that says about me. Maybe that's, that's again, this intercultural journey that I've had from being born in England, being British, to now living in the Netherlands and in a different culture. Maybe that's brought out a different side to me. That's interesting. Mm. Are you more intricate in particular about the things that you're passionate about? Um, intricate. Well, I, I think once I hit the passion point, I'm like, I'm all or nothing. Mm. So once I'm passionate about something, I'm like a dog with a bone. I kind of hang on there and I'm, I, I give it my all for sure. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. And so please explain a little bit to us about the diversity doctor community and, and what's your, your business, what's your brand all about? Yeah. So it's a new and evolving brand and it's a new and evolving community. And I have sort of several decades of experience in academia, research, consultancy, and working in the space of diversity and inclusion. And the one thing that I have noticed in the last year or so is that I feel we're getting more and more exclusionary in our diversity work, mm -hmm. and we get very focused. Now, there's nothing wrong with being focused, but when we talk about diversity, it might people tend to look at it within maybe a work environment or in certain areas and the diversity doctor is really about I call it everyday intentional inclusivity so for me it's about switching on that light bulb that switch it's how I see the world I see diversity and inclusion everywhere and so within the community I share information that just brings it to the forefront in lots of different contexts so we don't only have to talk about recruiting diversely in a workplace we all talk about um friendship groups or networks or what we watch on Netflix and what those characters mean to us. So it's really about just bringing it to the forefront of our mind so that it becomes second nature as opposed to this difficult space to be in. I, I love that. And I love how you touched upon building that culture of inclusivity, because it's really important to just shift that mindset and just say, I want this as how we interact with people. It's not enough for one group to feel included or one gender to feel included. We want everybody, we want this to just be ingrained in us as people. And so I really love um, the mission that you're, you're out here trying to accomplish. Thank you. And I think, you know, becoming a mother, um, I have three young children, 10, eight, and five. And you know, none of us are born with biases, none of us are born racist or homophobic or, but we learn those behaviors. So I see it in my children as well as their different age. I see it in their toys. Like we have a toy that a guess who game, which is the board game where you have to try and mm -hmm. guess who the other person has got their little cards. 
I was playing that with my children at Christmas and I realized that even that isn't diverse or inclusive. There are more men in the div- in that game than women. That you know, and I'm like, well, hang on. Yeah. We're 50% of the population. How come we're even missing from a board game? What is going on? Like, and that's what my five-year-old is playing. So he's getting those messages. And I'm like, no, let's interrupt this. This is not okay. So because it's how Mm. I see the world, it's easier for me to interrupt those messages to my children to help them understand and and grow into a world that that they see the world with diversity and inclusion. Mm, I, I love how you said you interrupt that, right? Because as we are creating this culture of being inclusive and diverse, there are patterns in behavior, thinking, whether in yourself, in your community, in your family, whatever that looks like that you have to interrupt. And sometimes it's easier to interrupt it when it's someone else, but you have to do that when it's yourself as well. And so I'm really, really excited and hope that we get to jump into that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so just kind of giving a little bit of the background about kind of like the why that we're here. And I really wanted to explore with you creating that culture of diversity and inclusion. And um, mainly because we here in specifically in Waterbury, Connecticut, um, we see a lot of this battle between diversity and inclusion. And like, we'll create like a committee for diversity and inclusion, but you continue to see that we don't have this culture of diversity and inclusion, particularly like yesterday, there was an article put out by a local paper stating that at the federal level, one of our local leaders is pushing to make racism declared a public health crisis, which is not unfamiliar for our state. We've had other towns that have said, we're going to do this towns that might not even have a very diverse community, but they're like, we want to do this because we want to take steps to be inclusive and and just make sure that everyone feels welcome. And locally, we continue to have this push of, we are not going to take steps there because we don't have racism here. We make everyone feel um, welcome and we don't want to increase in in claims uh, saying that someone was racist or discriminated against. And even though people continue to provide knowledge or resources, say we haven't seen any of those trends locally or nationally, there is still this pushback. And even going into the comments and seeing people are like, uh, we don't have a diversity issue. We have a parenting issue or we have a respect issue. Um, just, there's this constant narrative of we don't need diversity. And so that's kind of like the long-winded answer of the why that we are here. And so please share a little bit about your thoughts on that. And what's the culture over there in the Netherlands and and over with the Dutch as far as diversity and inclusion? Wow. I mean, that's a, this is a big topic, right? This is, and it's multi-layered. I think that's what's really important. So And a lot of what you've talked about there comes back to language. And as a qualitative researcher, words Mm. mean something. And how we use words mean something. Mm. And and it's also the words we don't use that mean something. So Mm. I think we use diversity and inclusion almost... the, The Dutch are very good at putting words together and making one long word, right? So some of the Dutch words are so long and they make one word out of it. And I feel there's a tendency that we're doing that with diversity and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion. We say it like in one go, like it's one thing. I think we've also lost sight of what 
diversity and inclusion means. We started this conversation talking about connecting as human beings. A lot of the work that I do, I don't even use the terminology diversity and inclusion. I talk about belonging. I talk about safety. I talk about those things because I feel like, and this is also a little bit where the the brand and the title Diversity Doctor comes from, we're very busy treating symptoms. So we're trying to put a Band-Aid on a symptom. And for me, some of the terminology we use is a symptom of exclusion as opposed to understanding why. Why are we doing this? You asked about the why. And I feel like until we take a beat and look at the why we are doing things and be open and honest Mm -hmm. and admit our whys, we are going to continue to try and treat the symptoms as opposed to the cause. And where there is Mm. one form of exclusion, so I work a lot with high-performance sport, and sport sport is very binary. It's very men, women, right? And that's how it's structured. That's how we compete. That's how it's been built. So the culture of elite sport is very binary. You have to pick a box. I mean, Facebook gives you 60-something boxes to choose from in terms of your gender identity. (laughs) Sport gives you two, right? So there's a difference in cultures. It's, It's very you know, black and white and segregated. Um, And a lot of the sports, high performance sports, elite level sports, they might start talking about, well, we need gender. We'll have a gender working group. Let's call it the women's committee. But the thing is where there's gender exclusion, there's often issues with sexual identity, homophobia. There is issues with racism and identity in sport. There's issues about ableism. There's... uh, um, issues with elitism and access and you know your your uh, financial background so many different things but because we're like okay let's focus on gender and we'll fix that problem and then mm-hmm. when we fix that problem then we'll come back and fix the other problems mm-hmm. that's treating the symptoms the cause is that sport was built by white able-bodied men for white able-bodied men full stop and so anything else that comes into that space is an other and is excluded. Unless we go back and, and deal with that, and I'm not blaming anybody, that's how it was built, that was a society, that was our culture at the time. But until we take a beat and go back and figure that out, we're going to continue to try and treat these symptoms. And it's literally like trying to put out one fire when it's it's actually like a bushfire. You know, these fires of exclusion are raging everywhere. And you're looking over there and you're trying to put out, you know, the fire of um, racism with your little watering can. And then behind you, there's another fire blazing away about sexism. So just <laughs> stop treating the symptoms, take a beat, really be reflective and look at the the why, the cause, and then we can stop making progress. Sorry, that was a very long-winded. <laughs> I no, no, it was it was perfect because, and I because I think a lot of times when talking about diversity and inclusion, um, people's like antennas go up and they get nervous because they feel like if we make this issue or like okay if we if we make women feel included, then we isolate this area or we isolate that. But it really is um, about that culture of how do we make everyone because i like how you said that sports was made for um white able-bodied men because we often don't include those that are differently abled or who have a disability or who have some type or who need a accommodation when we talk about diversity inclusion we often think of Mm -hmm. race and then like we're like we're like zeroed in like we got to make each race feel included but 
it goes beyond that. So I, I love your explanation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what I worry about, that it's become, like, in, in of itself, diversity and inclusion is becoming exclusionary. Like, mm. I, you know, I'll click on a newspaper or, or an article headline that says diversity and inclusion, and I'm like, well, this is a really interesting article about race. Mm. So why don't you call it that in the title of your article? You know, because... And it also mm. then comes back to... Uh, personal identity and and it's almost like who has the right to talk about these issues then so mm. i saw on linkedin for example there was linkedin training on diversity and inclusion and it was a female and she um she mentioned that she was i don't know what percentage mexican in in her sort of introductory uh, speak about what she was going to do for the training and then in the comments below it was like i don't know why she had to mention it and then the other comments were because she shouldn't be talking about diversity and inclusion if she's not an ethnic minority and this, that, and the other. But then I'm like, but if she's talking about diversity and inclusion, unless you are the one individual that ticks all those boxes we just talked about, sexuality, gender, age, ability, neurodiversity, economic background, then you shouldn't be talking about this either. And I don't agree with that. I, I absolutely understand as a white woman... I don't know what it's like to be a black woman or a black man. I don't know that experience. But I can still find a space to talk about the topic. It's not my lived experience, but I bring something to the table, maybe from a different perspective, from Europe or, or for whatever. But if we keep having all these rules and sort of conditions about who can even talk about these topics, again, we're just shutting down the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. And when we talked previously, what really stuck to me in a good way was how you had brought up um, just the cultures of where both me and you live and how our conversations are different because of just the cultures of just the countries that we are in. And um, I, I think it's so hopeful talking with you and seeing how well, it's, everything's not perfect, but you guys have this foundation of we're going to create this culture and we're going to be inclusive. We're going to be vulnerable enough to say where we are biased. And here we always struggle with that foundation of we have a, a white able-bodied male who might say this is what this ethnic group wants or this gender needs. And so we can't get to that conversation I find here where it's like everyone can talk about this because we all have this goal that we are all going to be equal. We are all like, we can't get to that foundational of we're going to treat humans right here. It becomes this argument of we are treating everyone right versus, well, I don't feel that way. I don't feel safe. And how do we get there? It, it, we, we can't agree on that. How do we fix that, if at all? How how do we how do we move the needle on that area? I agree, and I think you know, coming from Europe, looking toward America and what's happening in America, the what what I see from over here is is a very different world than than I'm living in right here. Um, in the Netherlands, I don't. We, we don't have guns on the street. I don't have to worry about that. I've, I trust the police. I feel like I have a, you know, as much as I would do in England. I don't, I don't personally feel unsafe, even in the cities. Um, I 
feel I feel fearful to go to I mean I've been to America many many times I've worked over there I've been to lots of different areas but it doesn't feel like a safe place and I think safety is fundamentally important like physically physical safety psychological safety is so incredibly important to have these conversations if you are constantly in fear or or flight fight or flight mode you cannot relax and have conversations there's so much judgment and it feels so incredibly divided and extreme I would say as a European mm-hmm. looking in it feels very extreme very extreme in oh, terms it feels of extreme wealth, us too. healthcare <laughs> race <laughs> you know and and uh your your news outlets you know and 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 which which side they're on and so therefore which story they present and therefore which narrative are, are they presenting based on where they're coming from it's it's so polarized that would be my perspective looking in absolutely and i love how you you because the information that we are fed on a daily basis is either one or the other that middle ground we have so lost there is no middle ground there mm. is no it, it and the issues are so um they're important and like people's lives are on the line and instead of saying okay what's the middle ground because like it is like like some you know it's a very contentious topic it's like nope we're gonna go for the mm. the path of most contention and most violence you're either here or there and so we are never getting where we can and have that safety and and i love how you mentioned um psychological safety because i was reading you have this um pamphlet of words regarding diversity and inclusion and i loved how you picked up on psychological safety and that's just where you feel safe and you don't feel judged and you're able to have these conversations. So please t- uh, talk a little bit more about that psychological safety. Yeah, I think for me, psychological safety is the, is the foundation of conversation. It's the foundation of work in diversity and inclusion. Um, so if I give you an, a, a psych- psychological safety means I am not scared to get it wrong. I'm not, I don't have a fear of failure. So, of course, I am still very aware of that my words and actions will have consequences. And I, it, it, it doesn't give you this free pass to say anything that can be offensive because, it, you know, it, it's not that. But it's about, I'm not sure how to talk about race because I'm a white woman. And I am on my journey to being an anti-racist. And this is new for me. I did not consider myself to be a racist, but I have learned that I was colorblind. That's how I was raised. I didn't realize until recently, and I am working on myself and my actions to be anti-racist. And this is a journey that I'm on. But to feel comfortable enough to say that takes psychological safety because there is a lot of judgment that will come back from that. And there are consequences to that. And it feels very vulnerable. So it's incredibly important. If we talk about, again, coming back to cultures, in my house, with my family, there is psychological safety. There is no topic on that can't be discussed around our kitchen table. There is no, no taboos. There is nothing that we can't talk about. Uh, my children are, as I said, are five, eight, and ten, and we've already talked about sex and sexuality and gender and these kind of things because it's a safe place, and I want to give them the information, and we're, we're open to have conversations. 
But how many other places can we truly say we feel that safety to have those conversations? And an, another term that's used all the time is be your authentic self. But I have to be safe to do that, right? I feel like organizations are just, oh, be your authentic self. But it's a two-way street. You have to therefore be ready to accept me however I may show up. And I don't think many places are that. So there's all this kind of lip service and again, surface level. How can we talk about, how can we do unconscious bias training if there is a fear that if I say my bias makes me a racist and I'm working on that to be an anti-racist, if I don't feel safe enough to say that, what's the point of the unconscious bias training? I, I love how you talked about that vulnerability. And especially within your home environment, in your work environment, because we do, um, that is the, the trendy word, be your authentic self. But are you ready to accept authentic me? Me that is, you know, mm -hmm. that says that I don't feel included or I'm angry about this, but you feel passionate about it. Um, I think that's fantastic. I, I love that. And I love how you talked about even addressing um, gender equality with your children. Because a lot of times we say, oh, five is too young, eight is too young, 10 is too young. What encouraged you to talk to them? So I think that is a big difference as well from, from the Netherlands. The Netherlands are very liberal. They're very an, a very open society. My children will have sex education in the schools in the Netherlands younger than they would in the UK, for example. Um, my husband and I had talked prior to the conversation about how we would approach it. And we wanted to approach a conversation about sex from a physical perspective and an emotional perspective. It's not, mm. you know, just one or the other. It's, it's, it's both. Um, and my daughter had started dancing like pop video kind of dances and stuff and it was becoming a little bit more provocative and they were using language in their chat that was a little bit more so it wasn't like we decided today is the day or when they reach this age we are going to have this conversation mm. we were listening to what they were doing we were observing what they mm. were doing and we reacted so because we could see this conversation evolving as they were playing and what they were talking mm -hmm. about it was just a real checking point to I heard you mention this word. What do you think that means? Mm. And then having that conversation and talking about it. And I think from the words, from a words perspective, we use sex and gender interchangeably and they mean different things. So sex is our biological chromosomes, our bits and pieces. That's, that's you know, when you have the sonograph when you're pregnant and they identify the sex of the baby, that, that's what that is about, Right. And yet then we say, let, oh, we're having a gender reveal party. But gender is a social construct. So gender is how society has sort of shaped what that sex should act like and what that sex should act like. So we don't know the gender of the baby yet. We know the sex of the baby, but we use the terms interchangeably. And I think it's because even the word sex is a bit taboo. Like even when I say it, I feel like you should spell it out, right. S-E-X. I know, it's like it gets beeped out or it shouldn't, you know, it's a dirty word or we shouldn't say it. It's just a word and it's a word that means something. And so unless we have that, again, just simply, this is a word 
And this is what it means. Nothing more, nothing less. Right? And that's it. And then that's how you have that conversation about. And then it moves to things with it with the children like, oh, pink, pink is for girls. No, it's just a color. It's just a color the same way as blue is just a color. Oh, girls have long hair. Well, it's just hair. Girls can have short hair, boys can have long hair. Girls paint their nails. Well, again, if they want to, but as a boy, you could also paint your nails. It's just paint on nails. It's nothing more or less than that. So have the freedom to kind of express or to make your own decisions without all this pressure and labeling mm. that that is happening to them before the age of 10. So why don't we give them the vocabulary to express themselves and talk about it as this is happening to them? I love how you mentioned freedom and pressure, because I think that over here, there is this free, this pressure. Like we talk about, like we are free to choose, but we add all this pressure that negates the freedom part. And there is this pressure of women do this, men do this, age does this, a body type does this. And there is this pressure of these mm. checkboxes that someone should be doing based on whatever they identify as. Christian should believe this, Muslim should be believe this. And it's this pressure and you are never being authentic because you're afraid of doing the wrong thing. So it's like, what does it mean anyway, if you don't feel free in your own skin, in your own space? And so I love how you talked about freedom and pressure because then we then dump that on the kids. It's like, uh-oh, Johnny is looking at the skirts when he's doing role play with, you know, the kids at school. We can't have him do that. Well, maybe he's just playing. That has no bearing exactly. on it's 20 years from now and I think that's really important to reflect on that so if my if my son picks you know the frozen dress out of the toy box and puts it on why am I fearful for that right so just mm. take a moment why does why do and it does evoke an emotion in me oh that's wrong why Again, come back to the why. Oh, because boys don't wear dresses. Why? Because society has taught us that. Why? Or, oh, I'm worried. What am I worried about? Am I worried that because he's put a dress on, he's going to be gay? Well, the dress won't make him gay. And even if he was gay, why would I be worried about that? What is wrong with that? I'm fearful because he won't be safe in environments. Because, you know, if mm. unless you're cisgender and straight, the world is judgmental in many areas and it's not safe in many areas so as a parent that raises fear in me but then it's my job to make those spaces safe not to change my son and his identity right right I, I love how you know you walked that why back to the root right so this mm. event created this emotion and why, right? And it goes back to a feeling of safety. You fear your child is not going to be safe. And then that prompts that we need to create safe environments and safe spaces. So I, I love how you walk that back to the root of that why. And I think a lot of it is when we get to that why it's not a safe space. I think what a lot of people are doing is trying to change the individual to fit Correct. the unsafe environment that's where we've got to right like you you've said it several times and i think it's brilliant but like we we've made the world so small 
we've made such limiting boxes that we have to be inside. And if you step across that line or you're not, you can't pick these binary, you know, divided ideas of what the world should be. You know, if you can't be X or Y, you have to pick a side. We don't. If gender is socially constructed, it means it can be constructed in any way we want it to be constructed. Who says it can only be constructed into two options, men and women? It's socially constructed. We built this. So if we built two versions of it, why on earth couldn't we build a hundred different versions of it? So it's about just unpicking, yeah, like you said, the why and boxes and labels are so limiting and it's exhausting. And I think for me, that's what we need to to work on again, rather than trying to change people, we need to change the labels and the spaces that we've created. Absolutely. And you know, I identify as a Christian, female, heterosexual, right? So quote unquote, normal by society standards, right? And I bring in religion in what I identify into the conversation, because I think sometimes when we're talking about making everyone feel safe, we, we like to play the religion card of, well, it's against my religion. Having someone feel harmed or, or not accepted is also in the Bible, right? So like, just because I have this religious belief and this personal belief, you should also be safe. No one should be harmed based on what box. And like, that is where we need to like, we get so fearful when we're talking about safety as if it's like this right or wrong thing. No, like safety, everyone should feel safe. And so, um, that is also like something I, I would hope as a culture here in America that we would acknowledge that you can have your religious beliefs, but you also need to make sure that people feel safe because it is not okay for others to be harmed because they believe other, whatever that other is. Yeah. And again, I think it comes back. It, it's the labels, isn't it? And the lines that we cross, like where, where is the line? And I think that's also something that we're not looking at enough. Like, where is my line of acceptance? Where is my line of, I'm okay to accept you because of X, Y, and Z, but not the person over there because. Mm. Um, um, where is that coming from? And, and again, it comes back to our own safety. It also comes back to privilege. And that's not just in, in terms of a race discussion that comes into, I think, every area of diversity and inclusion it is about what will I there's this fear that I have to give something up if I open this space to others we live in a we don't live in an abundant mindset right there should there is enough there, is, there should be enough safety in the world be, for right? everybody right I mean how ridiculous is this that are we scared of giving up my safety because I won't have enough and then I can't make you safe because I won't be safe it's this there is abundance of this stuff. And if we start to shake off the layers and just open up to that, we don't need to be fearful of giving something up. And I think that's a big barrier. People feel like if I give this, if I give you something, I'm, I'm losing something myself. Right. Right. That is so often talked about. Um, specifically, you hear this a lot with um, race, but it's some, it does come into the conversation when talking about gender that, well, if we allow Black people to have the same access, then what about my kids? And um, I even had someone that I 
uh, considered a friend talked to me and, you know, she was white and she says, well, I have to have my conversation with my kids that they're going to lose out on opportunities because they're white. And I said, that's not what Black Lives Matter or culture or inclusion means. And it was just very hard for her to um, see that and understand that. I think for me, the, and again, it comes back to just taking a moment myself and to, to, to consider, if I feel I'm giving something up, it's because I already had it. And that for me is privilege. Mm-hmm. If I have something to lose, it's because I had it in the first place. That's the point. I, I just happen to have it. And so why? Why do I have it? And why would I give it up? And, and, and to reflect back personally on that. If you feel you've got something to lose, it's because you had it in the first place. And why do you have it and somebody else doesn't? Um, mm. So I think that's, that, that's helped me kind of understand. And that could be in terms of being able-bodied or being educated or living in Europe or, you know, I have great access to healthcare here. Right. That's because our society is set up that way. That's and I'm very privileged because I happen to be born here and I have access to this. I, I love how, again, it goes back to language in reframing everything, um, because even like whether it's again, because, again, we're talking about diversity and inclusion, that means socioeconomic. Right. So why does this person who is homeless or on the street not have access? And we often hear do this thing, well, uh, if they don't have a place to say, they must be bad or less than or lazy, right? We have all these labels, but like, think about the privileges you have that have protected you or that have allowed you, whether that's family, whether that's income, whether that's opportunity, right? So it really just humbles you to look at that person as a person versus as something negative, the negative labels that we put on on people or um, other type of, of categories. Yeah, and I think also there's this this assumption that if I say I'm I have privilege that it that I have a free pass mm. or that it's you know or that I don't have any problems because I identify I have privilege. And of course that's then again they're not the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us more about that. Like, do you see over there, like when there's conversations of, you know, so for here, it'd be like trigger words. So privilege, diversity, inclusion. Do you find that people respond the same way over in your part of the world? Or um, is it easier to have the conversation? I would assume it's easier to have the conversation because because I, I, well, I certainly don't feel fearful for having these conversations here. I think mm. because generally we are in a more open society and they don't feel as weighted and they don't feel as politically associated. Mm. So I think that that's a different environment. Privilege is still, is difficult for people to understand. I feel like it's almost a new word that's come into our vocabulary and, and it's difficult for people to understand this kind of, like I said, if you feel that you're giving something up it's because you had it in the first place I I think we've only really started to talk about privilege in the Black Lives Matter anti-racism kind of movement and that feels very different over here and I um 
But it's interesting because I, I think as Europeans, we look to America and we'll say, oh, they have a problem with racism, you know, and we're pointing a finger and we're like, because we see it, it's on the news and you guys do have a problem with it. But it doesn't mean we don't. Mm. And I think that's also this kind of, oh, look at them. Oh, look, they've, they've not got it right. They've got an issue. But, you know, I mean, the Meghan and um, Meghan Markle, Prince Harry conversation. I mean, I think that was a really interesting uh, European American kind of point of discussion when it was alleged that well it wasn't alleged Megan said she felt there was you know acts of racism or that that her race had come into her experience of being within the royal family and I think the outpouring of shock again of oh, how dare you call the you know the royal family right. racists and uh, because it's nobody wants that label it's not it's not a comfortable word but the monarchy and I'm a royalist but the monarchy is uh, however many hundreds and however old it is um of course there are issues of racism in that institution because there are issues of racism in every institution and again I think until we just admit that of course the degrees and the level and the consequences vary but the Netherlands is not void of racism and the royal family is not void of it. You know, it's, it, yes, it's different. It, it, from my perspective, again, it certainly looks different over here than I look toward America and what I see over there. But it doesn't mean that we have this figured out. Mm. But I, I love that because I, I think it's an ongoing, and I don't want to say battle because it's, it's, it's an ongoing transformation of cre becoming a better human, right? We are all on this journey of how do we be a better human, right? And as culture changes over decades, over centuries, right? That's gonna shift. Hopefully we are not in this same place 20 years from now. Hopefully we're having a different conversation. Hopefully we're revisiting our, our societal expectations and we're saying, how do we continue to treat each other in an equal and fair manner? Um, but I do. I think it will be a shame if 20 years from now, uh, our kids, grandkids, whoever are looking at the TV and saying, wow, my, my grandmother, my mom went through the same thing, the same way this generation. You have your parents, grandparents, great grandparents saying, yeah, I remember going through and, and marching the same way you guys are marching now. So I hope that um, we are in a different place in years from now. But that's why I also think it's incredibly important to have these conversations with children because mm. the, children, the children go through society and systems, schooling, jobs, whatever, sport. They learn about life through going through these systems. And these right. systems are biased. These systems mm. are not diverse and inclusive and equitable. So why would we expect that our children will come out the other side having gone through this conveyor belt of exclusion and bias and, you know, and come out the other side knowing more than we have? We created these systems that we're putting the children through. And these, do you know what I mean? And I think that was a real wake-up call for me with, the, with my children as well and that level of urgency. My son, I have two boys and a girl. If they have the same qualifications, the same education, my daughter will get paid less than my son's for doing the same job simply because of her sex for her whole generate for her whole life coming forward because the pay gap won't be um leveled 
here for another hundred and something years. Why? Pay is simply a decision that is made every month during payroll. Like what, what is it that we're waiting for? Just make that decision and hire equally and pay equally. I, I don't, what's going to happen in a hundred years from now? Suddenly, I don't get it. I don't get why it's going to take that long because it's a conscious decision that we make. We could make that decision today. Every company out there, Microsoft, Google, whoever, could make a decision today to break the pay gap. And they're not Absolutely. doing it. So why is it going to be different by the time my children come through? Do you think it has to go back to limitations? And we say we can't do that because we won't have enough money. And the reason I bring that up, because, you know, like going through the pandemic, right? Kind of my mindset is like, oh, like everyone can't have health care or can't have this because we can't afford it. And then when the pandemic hit and they're like, oh, we're going to give like a stipend, we're going to give this. I was like, wait, you said that the government would be bankrupt if we did all yeah. these things. You had the power to do all these things. So do you think it's like the limitations that we believe because the company or whatever has put out that we can't do this because of the limitations? It comes back to the why for me, the why for DNI. Like what is your why for DNI? You can make a choice today to make your company equal, to pay equally. It's all about a choice. Will you have less profit margins? Yeah. Will you have, you know, consequences? Will your board members, stakeholders have consequences for it? Yes. But are you okay with that or not? Because that's a simple choice. Mm. You know, you, mm. you, you have to be mindful. These are choices that we make. We have built organizations, businesses, governments, schools to act a certain way. We set tax. We set social security systems. We make, that it's 101 decisions, but they are all simply decisions. Mm. But my question is, who is making those decisions, <laughs> right? And what is their why? So there is a particular type of person who, who runs organizations and schools and things, governments. That's how it's been built. That's how it's structured. And so they are making the decisions. We know when women are in power, different decisions are made. You, you know, talking about the pandemic, you look at how different nations have reacted to the pandemic. Look at what New Zealand's done, for example, with Jacinda Ardern and how she approached it and how they eradicated it. It's very different. Her leadership style is very different. The consequences of what happened, very different. Fantastic. Fantastic. I can go on and on. I will not. Um, please do not be a stranger to coffee and combos. Listeners, um, I urge you, think about your why. I, I think that is so powerful. And when you think of these things as they're just decisions and decisions have consequences, but can you live with those? And when you think about it like that, it makes it easier to move the needle of morality, right and wrong, diversity, inclusion, whatever label you want to slap on it. But it really is um, when you think about it as what is your why and these are just decisions, it gives you the power to then make decisions and to create the society that you want to have. So really thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, you know, anybody is welcome to join uh 
diversity.community. It, it's, it is a global community and it's a safe space to have these conversations and to take the time to reflect and to be intentionally inclusive on a daily basis. Let's break this down because it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like, well, if the pay gap's never going to be solved in a hundred and so years, what's the point? It can feel overwhelming. But like you said, it's everyday decisions. It's about thinking about why did I make that decision and the why, and just taking that moment to look at it from a different perspective, because we can all have impact in what we're doing. Um, absolutely. Please, before I ask you my last and final question, anything else you want to add, anything else you want to say? Um, how do we find the diversity doctor community? Anything you have going on with the diversity doctor community that you want to share? So first of all, I want to say thank you for, for this opportunity, because this has been a lovely conversation. And, and this you know, every time I talk about this, it makes me think differently. So I really appreciate this space that you've created. So thank you so much for inviting me to into your space to have this open and honest conversation. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about The Diversity Doctor, um, I hang out on Instagram a lot because I'm a visual learner and I like the visual impact of, of that. So you can certainly find me there under Dr. Donna DeHaan or The Diversity Doctor. Um, and there you can find a link to the Diversity Doctor community, which is, as I said, is free to join. Um, and in the community, you get a weekly bite-sized email from me. Again, making it easy, digestible, bite-sized pieces, an email from me every week where I talk about a different issue of diversity and inclusion in a different context. So it could be talking about colorism and Bridgerton on Netflix, for example, or just mm. everyday stuff that we can start to feel a little bit more comfortable about to get us thinking about our own whys so that we can go out and make a bigger impact altogether. I love that. I love that. And I think it was like you had shared something that you had put out from your diversity doctor community and I should have shared it. It was, you had these um, photos for people that, you know, if you were looking for like photos to be more diverse and inclusive. And I loved mm. that because there's also this conversation of how do we convey this visually? And sometimes it's just in think about the photos that you use in marketing or when you're sending out that memo, do you have a, a photo that really represents your organization and that is inclusive? So uh, listeners, please go over to... Um, her Instagram page, it will be in this episode bio and sign up for all the information to create a more diverse and inclusive um, society within your own space and the space around you. My final question is what's in your cup? And this is where I ask my listeners and my guests to think about three things that they need to add to their cup to get them through their day and their week. And while you think of your answers, I will give you mine. So I definitely am adding hope to my cup. Um, it, you know, again, um, uh, pre the previous episode um, was a heavy one talking about, because there was just so much going on as far as um, the George Floyd trial and, you know, police brutality. And so it was just like, almost feeling like a lack of hope, but in talking with you and talking about the work that you're doing and talking about um, how other cultures, while it might not be perfect, there it's a possibility, right? There's hope that we can get to a more inclusive society or a more aware society. So I'm adding hope. I'm adding why, exploring the why to why I do things or why I don't do things to my cup. 
and definitely adding conversations, but conversations that are psychologically and emotionally safe so that we can get to a point of growth. So hope, why, and conversations are, are going to be in my cup this week. What do you need to get you through your day and your week? Oh, what a beautiful cup. I want to drink from your cup as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm in <laughs> awe of the things that you added to your cup. I'm going to add gratitude to my cup because I think that's so important. I am incredibly grateful to have had this conversation um, and to share this conversation with your listeners. So gratitude is definitely important. Curiosity is, is a value of mine. And so I like to put that in my cup because every day is a school day. Like I consider myself to be a diversity and inclusion expert, but I don't know everything. I'm still learning. And I think having that mindset that there's still more to learn. I, I can only walk in my shoes and have my experience. But the more I talk to different people, the more I take a moment to reflect and understand and try to understand what it's like and why it's like that. So curiosity is really important for me. Um, so what did I have? I had gratitude, curiosity and love my little one's Ooh. here and he's uh, pulling my attention so love for for those around us and love for a better better world beautiful 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 uh, again do not be a stranger to coffee and combos i look forward to continuing to connect um because we're gonna fix this we are like i am determined we are gonna have a better world by the time we are all done with this that is the goal and we're gonna do it Yes, my friend, we are. We are. I'm excited for that. What a lovely way to end. Lots of enthusiasm. Absolutely. And yes, we are going to make a difference because we can.